For those of you guys watching online from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains, my name's Joe. I'm the pastor here at Lynchburg City Church, and if God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. Please just pray with me right now. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. We love you because you first loved us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for rescuing us. Lord, we owe you everything. Everything. Lord, for President Biden, we pray for a special grace upon him. I pray that you just protect his mind, his body, his mental faculties. Help him to make good and wise decisions. Lord, save him, God. For Vladimir Putin, I pray that you'd confuse and frustrate his plans. I pray that you'd save him. I pray for the peace of Ukraine. I pray for the, the church God there in Ukraine and in Russia that right now during times of just really, really terrible things, that it would be a beacon, a city on a hill, a light shining brightly, that you would be made much of. Lord, for our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, those serving at home and abroad, we pray for their, their safety. We pray for their salvation, Lord. So many of those guys that don't know you, and we've just prayed, Lord, that you would save them, that you would rescue them. Jesus, we need you today. I need you today. Help me as I teach. Help me to say only what you want me to say. If there's something that you don't want me to say, Lord, that maybe I'm planning on saying, then don't let me say it. And if there's something I need to say that I haven't even planned on saying, then I pray you give me a word. I pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit. I pray for those of us listening here today that whatever's going on right now, that you just give us peace right now. That, that you just give us the ability to concentrate that you'd help us kind of just hit the pause button on, on any other types of stressors or anxieties, and we just hear from you right now, Jesus. We need you, we love you, we, we praise you in your name, amen. Amen and amen. All right, here we go. Part 17, part 17. So uh, if it's your first time here, you should know we love expository preaching. That's where you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, we love it, it's awesome. It's really beneficial for a couple reasons. One, it, it really... By going verse by verse, it helps you not to take verses out of context. So if you've ever been to a church and the pastor reads a couple random verses and then just kind of talks about whatever he wants to talk about and doesn't really even have anything to do with the verses that he read, well, that's, that's one thing we, we don't want to do. And number two, it helps maintain the, the author's intended meaning, and we want to make sure we stick with what the author's meaning by it instead of trying to make our own meaning for it. And so we love verse-by-verse -verse preaching. We love expository preaching. If you're new to it, man, I hope you like it too. So this is the 17th sermon. I'm just going verse-by-verse -verse right through John's gospel. We're in chapter 6. Starting in verse 16, and I'll set this up for you, because if you weren't here last time, uh, here's just kind of like a brief recap. Uh, Jesus has just done the miracle at the beginning of chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, which commentators will say that probably was more like 20,000 when you account for the women and the children. And he does this amazing miracle, feeds everyone with five loaves of bread and two fish, despite <coughs> some of his own disciples not even thinking that he could. And then upon seeing him do this, there's some people in the crowd, and they're like, well, let's make him king. And, and so he, he leaves at that point before the crowd can do this. And according to Mark chapter 6, verse 45, he sends his disciples away to Bethsaida with the intention of meeting them there. And that's where we pick up in chapter 6, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, 
and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. Remember, he's like, back in Mark 6.45, he essentially tells them, hey, get in the boat, go to Capernaum, go to Bethsaida, I'll meet you there. All right. So he hasn't come to them yet. They get in the boat. And uh, it says, when evening came. Remember, it's been a really long day. Really, really long day. They helped distribute food to nearly 20,000 people. My guess is they're probably feeling a little bit tired. And so they get into the boat, totally drained, totally exhausted, only to find themselves in the middle of a storm. And it says in verse 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. The Sea of Galilee lies 700 feet below sea level. So you've got sea level, and then you go down 700 feet, and then you got the Sea of Galilee. 700 feet below the Jordan Rift, and you've got these surrounding hills all around it rising 2,000 feet high. You've got a difference of almost 3,000 feet uh, from the tops of the hills to the surface of this massive, massive lake, this massive sea, which uh, accounts for why there oftentimes are these violent storms that Galilee is notorious for. And Galilee is huge, seven miles long, 12 and a half miles wide. And even today with like power boats equipped with modern engines, at times they're warned to remain docked because of these storms. And that's with modern equipment. That's with modern technology. Mind you, the disciples, they don't have that. In fact, if you look at the screen right there, there's actually a picture of what is a first century Galilean fishing boat. This is a, a sketch taken from the English Standard Version, the ESV Study Bible, which if you don't have that, it's a terrific study Bible. ESV Study Bible. Put it on your Christmas list. It's awesome. But this is probably about the type of boat, size of boat these guys would have been in. It's about Seven and a half feet wide, 26 and a half feet long, about four, four and a half feet tall. So they're in this when the storm hits. This is all very, very scary. And then imagine for a moment the disciples, the position that they're in. They're fatigued. They're exhausted. And they're going to row three or four miles more after a really long day in this small wooden boat. Can't help but wonder, maybe, maybe some of you feel that way right now. You've had a long week, a long day, a long month, and you're just mentally exhausted. You're emotionally done, and yet you can't clock out yet. Like for the disciples, neither can they. And so verse 19 tells us, and when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Okay? They don't know it's Jesus yet. He's going to have to identify himself as Jesus. But they see this guy, and the text tells us they are frightened. Keep in mind, as many as possibly seven of these guys, of these disciples, they're fishermen by trade. They're used to being on the lake. They're used to being on the lake at night. They're used to being on the lake, I would imagine, in some degrees of rough weather. And yet, none of that mattered right now. In part because they didn't realize who this person was at first. Because there's no natural explanation for, for what they're seeing. There's a man walking on water. No natural explanation for that. But then again, this isn't in the ordinary man. And it tells us, but he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. 
Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The story of Jesus walking on water is a story that is filled with many, many miracles. And in case you're not keeping count, this isn't just one. There's four miracles taking place right now. You see, not only did Jesus walk on water, there's one. Keep count right now. Peter did two. The other gospels account for this, right? At least for a few moments. That's, that's, that's one, that's two. And then in Matthew and Mark's gospel, they record a third miracle when Jesus, along with a soaking wet and very humble Peter, get into the boat and the wind immediately stops. Three. And then right here, John records a fourth miracle, and that is immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. One, two, three, four. There they are in the middle of the lake. Boom, gets in the boat. Now they're, they're, they're at their next destination. They've, they've somehow teleported there. Four miracles. Four miracles happen right now before a, a, a panicked and tired and scared group of individuals in the middle of this storm. And the truth is, whether it's a giant lake in the Middle East or a small college town in the middle of Virginia, sometimes storms show up. And sometimes they show up when you don't expect them. Sometimes they show up unannounced. Like some of you guys were told, give your life to Jesus and your life's going to be filled with cotton candy and butterflies and you're never going to have any difficulty and you're never going to have any problems. And for those of you who were told that, I apologize, because that's not true. Like even now, we read about Jesus' disciples going through this crisis, going through this literal storm. And the reality is, for most people, you typically find yourself at any given point in your life in one of three boxes. You're either in it, you just get out of it, or you're about to go back into it. For any one of us, at any given point, those are typically the three places in life that we find ourselves. We're in the middle of a storm, we're in the middle of a crisis, we just got out of it, or we're about to go back into it. I think about what's happening to them right now. They left one place to go to another place. Are they at the other place? They're not the other place, right? They've been rowing three or four hours and, and the storm is there and, and, and they're just not making it through the storm. They're, they're not where they're, they're, they're trying to get to, right? It's blown them totally off course. I wonder if any of you are familiar with this. You're like, my plan is to go from point A to point B. My plan is to be married by the time I'm this age and have this many kids by the time I'm this age and make this much money and have this many pets. Like some of you have charted out your, your whole life's plan, your whole life's future. But at, at the present, it's not going the way that you hoped it would. Something came up unexpectedly that you hadn't accounted for. And for some of you, it's some type of health issue or concern. For others of you, the thing that came up unexpectedly were your parents splitting up. Or a forced change in career plans that's now left you feeling like your little compass is broken. And right now you're reminded that the course you set out on has come with some serious detours. And it's stressful. And it's scary. 
because the course that you set for yourself, it never included these type of pit stops, which have brought their own painful reminders that you would have preferred to have avoided. Like some of you know exactly how this feels. Like we were supposed to live happily ever after and then she broke up with me. Like one day I'm there and I'm celebrating my, my parents' anniversary and the next day they're being served divorce papers by each other. You had a best friend, you did everything together and now they won't talk to you anymore. And today you find yourself totally blown off course. That's what happened to the disciples. They're supposed to be in Capernaum several hours ago and things are not going according to plan. And as I mentioned earlier, these men, they're professional fishermen, probably up to seven of them, that they have fished this lake before, they know how to handle themselves, and yet despite their training and experience and youth and strength, it's just not enough. Like some of you have worked super hard. You've done all the things that you're supposed to do. And despite your best efforts, like the disciples, you're just way off course from where you plan to go, from where you plan to be. And it's more than just a little scary. And like the disciples, you're terrified of this storm. And that's because it's scary when something happens that you don't want to happen or didn't plan to happen, or that you've got no explanation for, for why is it happening in my life right now? Because it's scary. It's scary when you hit a financial challenge in which you don't know where the rest of the money is going to come from or how it's going to come because you've got bills to pay and you know that if you don't pay them, you are going to experience some very negative effects. And so Jesus tells him in verse 20, don't be afraid. You know, that's the, the number one command in the whole Bible. Like it's some form of or variation of don't be afraid because fear tends to be a kind of a big problem. And so what we uh, typically desire in these situations usually is for God just to come and, and take everything away. Because it's painful. And it hurts. And we don't like it. We don't like how it feels. And sometimes, yeah, he, he, does, he does remove us from the storm. He does remove the crisis he does take the, us out of the situation, but even when he does, even when he does pull us out of the storm, sometimes it still comes with a lot of tears and a lot of pain and a lot of scars and a lot of hurt. And unfortunately, sometimes as Christians, we don't always do the best job of helping other people when they find themselves in the storm. Like, sometimes as Christians, we can make matters a whole lot worse because we, we minimize the feelings of other people. I still remember this one girl many, many, many years ago here at the church. Um, and she just didn't have like any empathy or compassion for some of the other girls who weren't married. She's a married girl. And whenever these younger girls would come who weren't married, she just kind of minimized their feelings or she'd get mad or angry that they were, you know, in a crisis mode or they were having a rough week because, well, they don't even know what rough feels like. And, and the reality of the situation is, is when it comes to storms, just because it might not be a storm for you doesn't mean it isn't for someone else. That's, that's where we have to have compassion. 
See, if you notice, at no point does Jesus say, hey guys, this is no big deal. At no point does does Jesus try to belittle or minimize their feelings here. And, And here's the other thing of great importance when it comes to storms, and that is Jesus, he saves us from all sorts of things, including but not limited to ourselves. See, sometimes what we need to be saved from are really, really unhealthy relationships. Sometimes what we need to be saved from are really stupid financial decisions or indecisions. See, so, sometimes, right, we are so paralyzed by fear, we can't make any type of decision at all. And others of us are like so cowboy that we make all sorts of decisions without ever giving proper consideration to them. And that's what I mean by the fact that Jesus saves us from all sorts of things, including ourselves at times, including things we aren't even aware of. And I know someone's probably going to push back and they're going to say, Joe, I don't, I'm not sure I agree with you. Because think about what you're saying, Joe. If God has to save us from ourselves, if God has to save us from ourselves, if God has to, in some instance, save us from even a sinful decision, then our will may not be as free as we think it is. Where are my cowbells? Ding, 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 ding. Is that, is that a problem? Only if Jesus can't be trusted. Because the implication is this. If God saves us sometimes from ourselves, if God saves us at times from even poor choices, nay, even sinful choices, then the question that you're going to ask, that I would ask, is well, where does human responsibility fit? And my response would be, I, I don't make up the rules, I just tell the Bible story. For example, we preached through Genesis last year. In Genesis, uh, in Genesis chapter 20, there was this story. And uh, pull, pull that from the screen for a second. Pull that from the screen. Don't look at it. It's going to be my big crescendo. Maybe it's hard when, when it goes up to pull it from the screen. I don't know. But in Genesis chapter 20, I'll set this up for you. Uh, Abraham is this guy. He's married to this really pretty woman named Sarah. Praise God for being married to really pretty women. Definitely encourage that. Um, recommend it. Not really part of the point of the story. And yet it is. Uh, he's scared because he knows that if he goes into this city that the king may try to kill him and take his wife from him. And so, what he says is this. He says, oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister, and lies. The king, Abimelech, says, awesome, right? And he invites her, right? Strongly encourages her to become part of his royal harem. And then what do we see? We see this. God said to him in the dream, God comes to Abimelech and he says this. I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. I know you didn't know that Abraham was lying. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. I didn't let you sin against me. I didn't let you touch her. This is not interpretation. This is just me reading the Bible verse right now. And then me doing this thing right now, which is just so mind-blowing to see a text like this. And the reason I mention a story like this, the reason I mention a story like this is because oftentimes we don't believe that God is really totally sovereign. Totally sovereign. Even sovereign over sin. 
John Piper wrote an entire book called Spectacular Sins and Their Global Purpose for the Glory of Christ. Totally sovereign means he's totally sovereign. And when I say sovereign, I mean God can do whatever he wills. He can do whatever he wants to do. Psalm 115.3 says so much. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he wills. And, and, and once again, the reason I mention this is sometimes we don't believe that God can really help us. We don't believe at times that God can save us from anything and everything. And if you've been paying attention, this has kind of been a struggle for the disciples going back to last week with Philip who didn't believe Jesus could feed the 5,000. He's like, 200 denarii? That's nine months of wages? We still don't have enough. The problem's too big. The challenges are too hard. We can't deal with this. There's no answer. There's no solution. And of course, like everyone else, the biggest problem we have, the thing that we need saving from more than anything else is the wrath of God. That's the biggest problem we have. Did you know that? Say, I thought the biggest problem we have is sin. Well, sin's only a problem if someone's going to hold you accountable to it. That the biggest problem that we have is the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, it tells us that Jesus is the one that delivers us from the wrath to come. The biggest thing at the end of the day that we need saving from is God. We need God to save us from God. And what I think is really interesting about this story is that unlike in some other of the Gospels that uh, details the story, John makes no comment about Jesus stilling the storm. Did you notice that? He didn't say anything about it. It's not the point. John doesn't have Jesus here commanding the wind or the waves to be still in his account because that's not the main focus for John. It's not his authority that he wants to highlight like in the other Gospels, but rather for him, he wants to showcase that Jesus shows up. See, like I said earlier, at any given point, we're likely to find ourselves in one of three boxes. We're either in it, we just got out of it, or we're about to go back into that crisis, into the storm. And therein lies our greatest hope. Our greatest hope in the midst of the storm. Because it's one thing to find yourself totally blown off course in a crisis situation where it's just a terrible, terrible week or month or year, but it's a whole different ball game to be in that place alone and on your own. See, that's what John wants us to see. And it's not that believers, our lives are easy and without hardships, but when they do come, we have Jesus to help us. We have Jesus to take care of us. We have Jesus to get into the boat with us in the middle of the storm. And this is the, the big difference, you might say, between fear and faith. As Driscoll points out, fear is all about you trying to take control of the outcome. It's very natural. When you're in crisis mode, faith is you trusting Jesus. Faith is you remembering he's with you, just as like he's with the disciples. That's what it is. That's the point John is trying to make here. Jesus doesn't just stop the storm, but rather he gets in the boat with his disciples. He was with them in the boat. He was with them in the storm. He will continue to be with them just as he is with us today. He says, guys, it's me. It's me. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. I've got you. Some of you guys need to hear that today. Some of you need to be reminded of that today. Some of you need to believe that today. And so he says in verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, 
but that his disciples had gone away alone. Whether, uh, excuse me, um, essentially what happens is it gradually dawns on all these people. Something strange has happened here. The mystery is where is Jesus? Because we saw all the disciples get in the boat. He didn't get in the boat with them. But now he's here in Capernaum. He didn't get in the boat. I don't, how does that work out? I'm, let's just keep reading. Maybe we'll figure out the answer. Other boats from Tiberias, verse 23. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Whether these are like water taxi services to take them across the lake or just new people coming, it's getting more crowded. Verse 24, it says, So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Oh good, they're seeking Jesus. It's a good thing to seek Jesus. Here's the problem. It's not wrong to seek after Jesus. It's just wrong when you seek after Jesus for the wrong reasons. And this issue comes up a whole bunch in the Gospels. In fact, I don't think I ever actually realized how many times it does come up uh, until I started preparing and preaching through John's Gospel, which is why it also seems to be at least part of the reason this messianic mystery that's often referred to, where Jesus is concerned at times when he does miracles that people keep it like shh, under the like, like hush, hush. Because... For most of the people, and remember, he knows all their hearts, they simply follow him for what they can get. They aren't really interested in, in worshiping him or, or obeying him. And it says in verse 25, And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? What, what time did you get here, Rabbi? Remember, they saw the disciples get in the boat leave. They know he didn't get in the boat with them, yet they're in Capernaum now. Uh, he's in Capernaum now. He didn't get in the boat with them. He couldn't have walked like on land because we would have seen him. So uh, how did this happen? Like when did you, uh, how did, wait a second. <laughs> What's going on here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 26, you are seeking me not not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He says, in effect, you, you saw me feed 20,000 people back in verse 14. But you don't get it. You're not tracking. You don't, you don't grasp the spiritual implications of what you've witnessed. And why is this? Verse 26 just gave us the answer. Because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, they found their satisfaction with the miracle instead of the one who did the miracle. They are more impressed with the toy than the toy maker. Are you like them? Are you? Because I imagine there's some here today and you're here so that, well, you can tell your parents that you went to church in air quotes because you've got to keep mom and dad happy because if they aren't happy, they're not going to pay the bills. Like some of you guys are here today because of a girl or a guy or the prospect of a girl or a guy. Like if it wasn't for that, you wouldn't be here. And like the crowd Jesus is addressing, they don't get it. 
They're still finding, they're still looking for their satisfaction in the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed, as the Apostle Paul tells us. Once again, it's not wrong to seek after Jesus, but the problem becomes is when you start seeking after him like they do for all the wrong reasons. Verse 27, he says, do not work. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. You say, okay, well, what does that mean? Don't work for food that perishes. And to be clear, he's not advocating that you quit your job. He's not advocating that you stop working. He's not advocating that you drop out of school. Instead, he's saying, work for a different type of food. Work for a different type of food. Work for a type of food that endures to eternal life. Jesus is saying, I gave you guys physical food to eat, but that's not as important as this other type of food that lasts forever. And that is because there is a different type of food. And it's before you right now. And this food, this bread, it's more valuable than anything money could buy. See, so many people work their whole lives for food that perishes. Food that has an expiration date. And what Jesus is talking about here is something more than just literal food. He's telling the people that the things that they want have zero eternal significance. Or have you not heard that it was said, like in Matthew 6, 19? Jesus tells his disciples, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And this would include even immaterial things like prestige and power and status. Ergo, if you're looking for these types of things to bring you lasting satisfaction, they won't because they can't. Because they were never meant to. Like so many people today think, if only I could get this car or if only I can get this truck or this toy or this house or this relationship, this thing, whatever it is, then I'll have everything that I ever wanted, then I'll be happy, and then I'll be complete. And the reality is, even if you get it, you won't be. Because it's going to perish. Because it has an expiration date. Because it was never designed to give you lasting satisfaction. And Jesus is reminding us, don't chase after these things with the hope that they will be for you, what your soul is longing for. And so you go to school, and you go to work, you make investments and you're wise and you're shrewd in what you do as if working under the Lord. But remember that your main job is not the one that you have. Your main job is not your business or even your family. Your main job is not school despite what your parents tell you. But rather your main job is living your life in such a way that you make it count for things of eternal significance as Christ's representatives here on earth. Or as Piper would say, Jesus calls us to be aliens and exiles in this world, not by taking us out of the world, but by changing at the root how we view the world and do our work in it. And secondly, he says here in verse 27, on him... God the Father has set his seal. And by that he means that God has authorized his son Jesus, the son of man, to be the mediator of eternal life. To, to give it whoever he wills to give it to. He's telling the crowd, don't go chasing these things with the hope that they will give you what your soul craves. He says, also I... I have full authorization to say this, and I have full authorization to actually give you what your soul craves. To give eternal life. Because I am the bread of life. But 
you all are looking in all the wrong places to find that. So in verse 28, he says, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? So here's the big question. Are we saved? Because they want to know, what, what, what must we be doing? What works? Here's the question. Are we saved by works? Yes or no? Are we saved by works? Yes or no? no. One more time. Are we saved by works? No. You know I'm going to throw a trick question in here. Anybody say yes? Anybody who's brave enough to say yes? She, you heard the sermon. <laughs> that doesn't count. We are saved by works. Just not our works. Right? We are saved by works, just not our works. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 64, 6, tells us our, our works are the best works we have. Our, our most righteous works are like filthy rags to God. No, we're saved by his work. His substitutionary atoning death on the cross. We're saved by what he did. He cleans us up. He fixes us. He makes us right with God. He imputes his righteousness to us so that when the Father looks down, he sees he's forgiven. His debt's paid. They ask this question which reveals that they've totally missed what Jesus is talking to them about. They're still thinking that they can work, that they can earn their right standing before God. And the issue is you have to have a right standing before God before you can get it. Catch that? You've got you to have a right standing before God before you can get it. Well, well, if I've got to have it before I can get it, how do I get it in order to have it? Verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. This is it. Here's the answer. It's coming. That you believe in him who he has sent. Let's revisit just for a second what Jesus initially told them to be doing back in verse 27. That is to, to labor or to work for the sort of food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, right? And now here in verse 29, we get further clarification by Jesus that the way you labor, that the way you work, in air quotes, to get, to get this type of food that has no expiration date, that, that lasts forever, is by faith. It's by believing in Jesus that Jesus is the one who, who lived the life, right? We couldn't live. He died the death. We should have died. He paid the price we could not afford to pay. Jesus tells the people, and if you don't recognize this, if you can't recognize the person standing in front of you right now, the person speaking to you right now, then no amount of work, no amount of struggle, no amount of effort is ever going to matter for anything. And although they followed Jesus for a little while, even sailing across the Sea of Galilee, to find him, they eventually demonstrate they weren't true followers at all. In other words, it's possible to seek after Jesus for all the wrong reasons. It's possible to seek after Jesus for reasons that prove you don't actually know him in a saving way. And so as the team comes today, I want to pray for us. Lord, I pray that you would protect each and every one of us from self-deception. Protect each and every one of us from deceiving ourselves.
Lord, we know you give good gifts. You, you give really great gifts. But I pray that our heart would desire you before anything else, above anything else. And maybe today for some of us, that's just not the case. And I pray that it would be. I pray that you would be our, our deepest love and joy and passion more than anything else. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged today, especially those of us who are going through just difficult things. Lord, I can't imagine the, the weights that are on some of these people's hearts and minds right now. But Lord, may we be encouraged to remember, like with the disciples, you got in the boat with them. That you're with us. That we're not alone. We've got you. And I pray that we would hold on to you. Help us, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. We always do. Just moments of crisis and pain and hurt sometimes reveal that and magnify that a little more than normal. Lord, I pray that you would be for us, our everything. You are the bread of life. Lord, I don't want us to be like the crowd, just looking to you to give us what we want. I, I pray you would be what we want, that we would see you that way as the only truly satisfying thing for our soul. Amen.